Hello again, everyone. My name is Stephen Wilson, and you're listening to the podcast, The Leaves of a Victim Nevermore. This is starting a new season. This will be season two, for those of you keeping track. The purpose of this podcast is to speak about a form of therapy for people that identify as victims of sexual abuse and or addiction. My name is Stephen Wilson, and I am a adult survivor of childhood sex abuse, and I am a drug user. Today's podcast, um, and I have decided to keep the the format the same from season one to season two. And I'm, if you're new here, I start out the podcast with a reading of more than likely a academic work or something in philosophy, something in sociology that I believe is somewhat relevant to the topic of the podcast. Of course, it's up to my discretion. But today, I am going to be reading from the book, Are Prisons Obsolete? It was written by Angela Davis, a civil rights activist and professor. I'm going to be reading from the very beginning, Introduction, Prison Reform, or Prison Abolition. In most parts of the world, it is taken for granted that whoever is convicted of a serious crime will be sent to prison. In some countries, including the United States, where capital punishment has not yet been abolished, a small but significant number of people are sentenced to death for what are considered especially grave crimes. Many people are familiar with the campaign to abolish the death penalty. In fact, it has already been abolished in most countries. Even the staunchest advocates of capital punishment acknowledge the fact that the death penalty faces serious challenges. Few people find life without the death penalty difficult to imagine. On the other hand, the prison is considered an inevitable and permanent fixture of our social lives. Most people are quite surprised to hear that the prison abolition movement also has a long history one that dates back to the historical appearance of the prison as the main form of punishment. In fact, the most natural reaction is to assume that prison activists, even those who consciously refer to themselves as anti-prison activists, are simply trying to eliminate prison conditions or perhaps to reform the prison in more fundamental ways. In most circles, abolition is simply unthinkable and implausible. Prison abolitionists are dismissed as utopians and idealists whose ideas are at best unrealistic and impractical, and at worst mystifying and foolish. This is a measure of how difficult it is to envision a social order that does not rely on the threat of sequestering people in dreadful places designed to separate them from their communities and families. The prison is considered so natural that it is extremely hard to imagine life without one. 
It is my hope that this book will encourage readers to question their own assumptions about the prison. Many people have already reached the conclusion that the death penalty is an outmoded form of punishment that violates basic principles of human rights. It is time, I believe, to encourage similar conversations about the prison. During my own career as an anti-prison activist, I have seen the population of U.S. prisons increase with, with such rapidity that many in the black, Latino, and Native American communities now have a far greater chance of going to prison than of getting a decent education. When many young black, I'm sorry, when many young people decide to join the military service in order to avoid the inevitability of a stint in prison, it should cause us to wonder whether we should not try to introduce better alternatives. The question of whether the prison has become obsolete institution has become especially urgent in light of the fact that more than two million people out of a world, out of a world total of nine million now inhabit U.S. prisons, jails, and youth facilities and immigrant detention centers. Are we, going, are we willing to relegate ever larger numbers of people from racially oppressed communities to isolated existence marked by authoritarian regimes, violence, disease, and technologies of seclusion that produce severe mental instability? According to a recent study, there may be twice as many people suffering from mental illness who are in jails and prisons than there are in all psychiatric hospitals in the United States combined. When I first be became involved in anti-prison activism during the late 1960s, I was astounded to learn that there were close to 200,000 people in prison. Had anyone told me that in three decades, 10 times as many people would be locked away in cages, I would have been absolutely incredulous. I imagine that I would have responded something like this. As racist and undemocratic as this country may be, remember, during that period, the demands of the civil rights movement had not yet been consolidated. I do not believe that the U.S. government will be able to lock up so many people without producing powerful public resistance. No, this will never happen, not unless the country plunges into fascism. That might have been my reaction 30 years ago. The reality is that we were called upon to inaugurate the 21st century by accepting the fact that two million people, a group larger than the population of many countries, are living their lives in places like Sing Sing, Leavenworth, San Quentin, and Alderson Federal Reformatory for Women. The gravity of these numbers becomes even more apparent when we consider that the U.S. population in general is less than 5% of the world's total whereas more than 20% of the world's combined prison population can be claimed by the United States. In Elliot Carey's words, the prison has become a looming presence in our society to the extent unparalleled in our history or that of any other industrial democracy. Short of wars, mass incarceration has been the most thoroughly implemented government social program of our time. In thinking about the possible obsolescence of the prison, we should ask how it is that so many people could end up in prison without major debates regarding the efficiency of incarceration. When the drive to produce more prisons and incarcerate ever larger numbers of people occurred, 
In the 1980s, during what is known as the Reagan era, politicians argued that tough-on-crime stances, including certain imprisonment and longer sentences, would keep communities free of crime. However, the practice of mass incarceration during that period had little or no effect on official crime rates. In fact, the most obvious pattern was the larger prison population led not to safer communities, but rather to even larger populations. Each new prison spawned yet another new prison, and as the U.S. prison system expanded, so did corporate involvement in construction, provision of goods and services, and the use of prison labor. Because of the extent to which prison building and operation began to attract vast amounts of capital from the construction industry to food and health care provisions in a way that recalled the emergence of the military-industrial complex, we began to refer to a prison-industrial complex. That was Angela Davis, Our Prisons Obsolete. Well, friends, uh, today's podcast is once again based on um, a group therapy session. I am in a all men's group. All of the men, um, all of the men, are uh, adults that they survived childhood sex abuse in some way. And as Easter is on the well, Easter is coming. I think it's like two weeks away. One of the things that uh, has been happening in the group, for some reason, we had some news hounds. Now, I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching TV. I don't watch the news myself, but the topic of it actually left the group it, it left, uh, and I would like to point out that the moderator doesn't actually control the vertical or the horizontal we could talk about whatever we want to but the conversation went into the war in Ukraine and uh, at the time there were like two or three of them that caught on and eventually everybody went around and, and sounded off but these two or three started talking about some of the coverage and about some of the footage of the people that are in Ukraine and, and what was happening. And then there was obviously some mention of uh, war crimes. Uh, Vladimir Putin was, uh, I guess he was uh, found guilty of war crimes or there was an arrest sent out from The Hague. Um, and that was basically the, the impetus of the entire, you know, the beginning of the discussion. And... As I sat there, and again, I analyze everything that I can, whether I want to or not, when I started listening to them, now, it is, it is, I guess, standard issue for us to have sympathy for other men like ourselves. I mean, that is the whole, that's the premise of the, the group. But although the, the, the two or three that, that started the conversation, they started talking about victimization. And I guess they had 
they had listened to people and they had done their own investigation and found out that you know the the Russians not everybody in Russia wanted to go to war not everybody wants to rebuild the Soviet Union nobody wants to expand the Soviet uh, Union uh, sphere of influence but as always I always find it interesting to find out when people use words like victim especially for us because it's a hard call especially when it's happening in the moment because you don't know what's happening and I can tell you that um, there is only I believe there's one guy in the group that has served in the military and I although he did he did say a few things I didn't notice whether or not he used an analogy that he had been in war but he did he was in service And even in the group, when it was happening, I kept thinking about Angela Davis and the, the reading from today. I read that as an undergrad. Um, and I actually had to go after uh, Angela Davis and her work on my own. It, was, it wasn't part of the curriculum. But I always found the, the data mining on that, on the idea that you know, are prisons obsolete? And and the thing is, is that outside of Black America, there really isn't a, a conversation about, you know, what is conformity, what is a prisoner, what is a victim, because although there are many things in America where we decide to put them up on the big shelf, you know, this is really important. You know, your retirement, your occupation, money. And then here, if you don't conform in America, we take away time. Theoretically, we take away pleasure. You're not gonna be able to fornicate. You're not gonna be able to, to go to an anniversary party. You're not gonna be able to go to a birthday. You're not gonna be able to go to July 4th weekend. There are many things that you are gonna miss out and time is the one thing that we never get enough of. And that is what the American penal system is built on. And I think Angela Davis, I, I've always been impressed with her, her, her critical thinking skills. Because sometimes, especially people in sociology, they're always they're guilty of this. But it's almost as if they take the long way on purpose because they want to make themselves sound better or um, you know, they, they want to use big words. They want you, the listener, to assume, or infer rather, that you know what you're talking about. Um, we know that Angela Davis had been on trial. We know that you know she. There were things when, in the time that she was a Black Panther. She understood judicial. She under, She understood what it was to be in a cage. So I'm in the group, and I'm thinking about this book: Are Prisons Obsolete? And I've never actually come across a full-bore member of the anti-prison movement. I mean, there were a few people, but they were mostly students and mostly from uh, HBCs in Tennessee. But it, I always found it in there. She makes The reason I read the, the beginning of it is because she does make a, a bridge mechanism from 
capital punishment to prison, the concept itself. Because the idea that we're going to take your life and murder in America is illegal. It's like a soldier can kill if they're in combat, but there's a point at which you can commit a war crime. Okay, you're supposed to kill, but you're only supposed to kill these people. And it's a permission to break the law. You're, you're, you're being authorized. You're a soldier. You're supposed to, you know, kill the enemy. That's the enemy. That person is not the enemy. They're a civilian. And, and I think that the way that she tied together, and I know that it is a little bit of a reach, but I think Angela Davis did a very good job, you know, trying to um, link these things together about the American penal system and the military industrial complex. If you have a standing army, inevitably you're going to have to use it. You know, it was one of the biggest arguments that George Washington made as a founding father of America and said, look, we can't have a standing army. That's why it's not mentioned in the Constitution. As a matter of fact, it's not even mentioned in the Articles of Confederation or any of the paper trail that we use as a foundation. And this was something that the Founding Fathers acknowledged because they were well-traveled. They knew that when you had professional soldiers, you've got people that are trained to kill, and they're very good at it. So what happens if they can't do that, if they can't actually get out there and be a soldier? You need to find enemies. And if you can't do it local, you've got to go abroad. And I'm in this conversation. I'm sorry. I'm in the, I'm in the group session and I'm listening to these guys, and I know what they've been through. Um, you know, in that session, there were no new people. And so I had heard everybody's story. And I'm listening to them analyze what's happening in Ukraine and, and the concept of victimization. And of course, you know, you, again, I bring up the term victim, and that was brought up in the group, and it's something that I encourage people to investigate for themselves. But the idea that you go through soldier, what is a soldier, victim, what is a victim, prisoner, what is a, what is a prisoner? Okay, so you don't conform. And what you've done is really bad. We, the American people, have declared that you can't kill someone, and you can't even kill somebody with their consent. But the issue at hand is that when everybody looked at the war in Ukraine, when they, talk, when they did mention the war crime, none of them said that war itself is crime. The concept of it. This is my team, that's your team. Obviously we can't coexist, so I'm gonna have to make the kill. I'm gonna give the order to make a kill. And then you're gonna respond by trying to kill my people. And although, I, I, you know, I, again, I, I try not to grade papers, but I can't help it. But as everybody went off, and I guess most of them were anti-war, even the former soldier, they kept talking about Ukraine as if this is something that they couldn't imagine, that they couldn't see it. And that, you know, Vladimir Putin brought it to them. And yet, none of them actually considered war itself a crime. Nobody said that, I think there's something wrong with those Russian soldiers because they've committed atrocity. 
there are war there are war crimes being committed right now there are mass graves being being found something happened in the beginning of the war the russian soldiers went crazy well what is a soldier i mean couldn't you make an argument that being trained to kill somebody and then feeling well you know i'm in the mood to take a life i'm not ready to die myself but i've been trained to shoot and make an explosive and break your neck? What is a victim? And then when they started talking about the Ukraines, I said, this is not my war, but it is my fault. Blame. I've, I've spoken on this before. I'm not going to get into it now. But in group dynamics, we go through that question. Where do I end? Where do we begin? If you're not going to conform, and again, I bring up the fact that, you know, there were obviously, there were men that were soldier ready. They, they have a draft. But Vladimir Putin had to close the border because Russian soldiers were leaving. Russian men were leaving. And then he made an offer to prisoners. And again, you know, I, I, when it was brought up in group, I immediately thought about Angela Davis. Because really, what is the difference? If you can't conform and uniform, then as an individual, can you ever really be free? I mean, fundamentally, using this logic, is there a place in America where you cannot meet the criteria for being a victim? I mean, I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a viable question. That's a hell of a question. Where can you go in America and be absolutely free of obligations to the machine, to the state. And I, I know that some of these guys, some of these guys are really religious. And, you know, it, it's, it's the term, soldier of war, soldier for God, soldier of Christ. But you th again, you keep talking about time. You've committed a crime, but was it really a crime? Did you, at the time you committed the act, did you say to yourself, I'm getting ready to commit a crime? I mean, if, you've been, if your older brother has been training you to sell drugs, and you go out and you sell drugs, that's just a, that's just a new kind of entrepreneur, isn't it? I mean, if you join the military to avoid going into prison, I mean, Angela Davis, she had gone into black America. She had been, she'd been talking about the Hispanic. She'd been talking about the Native American. You know, it's something that has been well documented. If you're, if you're an Indian in America, you don't really have a lot of options here. You res up or you go into uniform or you just become a cliche. You go into a stereotype and you disappear. You're, you're drunk at the fuel station at 8 o'clock in the morning trying to sell a hubcap so you can get another bottle of whiskey. And I think Angela Davis never got really enough credit at the time. She'd always been a thorn in the side of society, those people that do conform, because that's not really her vibe. That's not her thing. Angela Davis was never really somebody that said, okay, I can go ahead and, and fit that construct.
But I think that what I found in the group, and I, I really hate to say it this way, but it's almost like it was somebody else's sympathy. It was, it was almost like it was borrowed. Because the war has been going on for, I, I don't know, maybe a year. And this was really the first time that, I, that we were in session and then this was a thing. Because what started out with these two or three guys, this lasted the whole session. The whole thing was about the war in Ukraine. And it, obviously, you know, people broke it down into victimization and about soldiers and, um, and about victims, uh, you know, the, the, the kids and the women, the widows. But I didn't understand what they thought they were going to do with it. Because if you're not going to see war itself, the act of war as a crime, if you think that it is natural law, if you think that it's standard issue, then I don't understand how it is that you can go into the in-between, the underneath. I don't understand how you can just say, well, if a soldier kills a civilian, you know, it's a rough place. I too have read some case studies by Vietnam vets. American soldiers did some horrible things over there. And some of the reports that you get from Afghanistan, same thing. Who is a victim? Who is a soldier? Maybe, just maybe, we are all casualties of time. Well, that's all I have for today. My name is Stephen Wilson. You've been listening to the leaves of a victim nevermore. May you be a blessing and may you find serenity.